Today I want to preach on the rainbow. God's Word has a great deal to say about rainbows. Of course, our culture has a lot to say about rainbows as well, uh, for very different reasons. What do you think of when you see a rainbow? Uh, according to science, a rainbow is an optical phenomenon that occurs when sunlight refracts through raindrops in the clouds. The raindrops act as prisms, spreading out the light into a spectrum of color. According to Judy Garland's famous song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow is where dreams come true. In songs and stories, rainbows are mysterious and magical. According to Irish folklore, the end of the rainbow is the leprechaun's hiding place for his pot of gold. And of course, in modern American culture, the rainbow has been a symbol of the New Age movement, of radical environmentalism, of multiculturalism, and especially gay pride. Uh, at gay pride parades, rainbow-colored flags and costumes are quite common. Uh, after the uh, Obergefell Supreme Court ruling uh, in favor of same-sex marriage, the White House was bathed in rainbow colors to celebrate the triumph of the gay rights movement. Uh, likewise, uh, back in uh, a couple months ago when this happened, Facebook uh, was dominated by rainbow avatars, all those who supported uh, gay marriage and, and gay rights uh, broke out their rainbow avatars to show their support for the cause and in celebration of its victory. And today, that is probably the most dominant association people have with the rainbow, uh, its connections with the LGBT movement. But what does Scripture say? God created the rainbow. He designed light and water to have these properties to work together in this way to create the multicolored effect that we see from time to time in the sky. God created the rainbow, and so God determines its significance. Uh, the rainbow is not a symbolic blank check for us to fill in with whatever meaning we choose. Rather, God has invested the rainbow with a certain meaning. The rainbow is God's symbol, and he tells us in his word how to interpret it. Uh, I want us to look today at what the rainbow means for God's people. Uh, it would also be good to look at what the rainbow means for God's enemies. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have time to get into that this morning in the sermon. Perhaps I'll come back next week and talk about that and maybe put some notes on the website to talk about what the rainbow means for God's enemies, because I think that's also important for us to consider. But today we're going to especially focus on what the rainbow means for God's people. What does the rainbow mean for us as the people of God? We first see the rainbow in Scripture after the flood. It's the culmination of the famous story of Noah's Ark. Uh, it's very interesting that many other ancient cultures have stories of a global flood uh, in which only one man's family survives. One man's family survives this flood, and through him the whole earth is repopulated. The Babylonians had their flood myth, the Greeks, the Chinese, uh, other ancient Near Eastern peoples, uh, even the North American Indians have got a, a story about a, a worldwide flood. Uh, there's no question historically that the flood happened. The historical testimony to it is too widespread to doubt that. What we have in Scripture then is not an account of history we wouldn't know from 
uh, any other source, what we have is an infallible and perfectly accurate account of this cataclysmic event. Now, to understand the meaning of the rainbow, we need to back up and talk about the event of the flood itself. We didn't read the whole account beginning in Genesis 6, but let me give you an overview. I think the story is pretty familiar to a lot of you, so let me give you an overview of it, and uh, then we'll get to the part that, that, that deals with the rainbow at the end. In Genesis chapter 6, God determines to bring the flood because man has become so evil and the earth is filled continually with violence. Ironically, God repents. God repents of making man because man won't repent. God is sorry that he made man because of the way man has turned out. Adam started a downward spiral into sin by rebelling in the garden when he took the forbidden fruit. Then Cain continued it when he sinned in the land by killing his brother Abel. And then the sons of Seth continued it when they sinned in the world by intermarrying with unbelievers. Humanity undergoes a series of falls leading to loss, leading to exile, leading to expulsion. Adam sinned and was kicked out of the garden. Cain sinned and was kicked out of the land. The Sethites have now sinned and they must be kicked out of the world. And that's really what the flood is all about. Again, things are so bad, God is sorry he even made man. The world is filled with evil and with violence. And so God is going to destroy the world and start over. One man, one man finds favor in God's sight. That man is Noah. Noah is called a righteous man, which means he trusts God. And he obeys God, he walks in God's paths, God's paths of righteousness. And so God will graciously spare Noah and his family when the judgment comes. Noah's name means rest, it's a prophetic name. God will use Noah to restore Sabbath rest to the creation. God is going to flood the earth. This is going to be the form the judgment takes. He's going to flood the earth. And so he commands to Noah to build an ark. What is the ark? It's uh, basically a wooden ship. It's really a big wooden box that will be able to float on the floodwaters and keep Noah and his family safe. Hebrews 11 tells us by faith, Noah obeyed and got to work building the ark. Second Peter tells us that during this time, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, testifying against his generation, calling on people around him to repent, that they too might be spared. For 120 years, he proclaimed the truth, but all people did was mock him. Well, finally, the ark was complete, and the architectural details were given about the ark are very interesting. The ark was built really to be a world model a kind of model of the cosmos, much like the tabernacle would be later in Israel's history. The tabernacle also was a kind of cosmic model, a model of the world. Just as the tabernacle had three zones, the ark has three stories corresponding to the three zones of creation, the underworld, the earth, and heaven. Noah was given very specific dimensions, just as the instructions for the tabernacle included very specific dimensions according to which the tabernacle was to be built, so it is with the ark. And so really we can understand the ark as a new creation in the midst of the old. God's going to destroy the old world, but the ark will be the beginning of 
a new world. The world outside the ark will be destroyed, but the ark itself will be the embryo of God's new creation. In fact, when the flood finally happens, we see a lot of connections with the original creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. The flood is kind of a decreation, recreation event. And of course you could say the same about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the end of an old world and the beginning of a new world. You see this happen repeatedly in Scripture. God tears one world down in order to build a new world. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, the earth was covered with water. In the flood, the earth is going to be covered with water again. In the beginning, God brought the animals to Adam for naming. Animals will later be brought to Aaron for sacrificing. Here, animals are brought to Noah for saving. Noah, like Adam and Aaron, will be a priest. And the ark will be his sanctuary. He will be the high priest of this aquatic Tabernacle, And that's why as soon as the flood is over and he comes off the ark, he's going to offer sacrifice. It will be the first thing he does when the flood is over. In fact, that's why Noah is instructed to take two of every kind of unclean animal, but seven of every kind of clean animal, so they will be available for sacrifice after the flood. But when the time finally comes, God shuts the door to the ark. Noah and his family are safe inside the rest of the world outside is going to be exposed to judgment. The saved are separated from the lost. And the rain begins, and it goes on for 40 days and nights. The fountains of the deep open up, and every living thing is destroyed from the face of the earth. Now, literarily, in terms of the way this story works in Genesis, from Genesis 6, 6 through 9, the flood story is structured as a chiasm, which means for everything that happens in the first half of the story, it has a match in the second half of the story. And that means, too, that the story has a very clear middle point, a very clear turning point, and that point comes in Genesis 8.1. There's no mistaking it. This is the center of the story. The waters have been rising, and then we come to Genesis 8.1, and we're told, God remembered Noah. And the whole story hinges on this. After God remembers Noah, the waters start to subside. God remembers Noah, his new Adam, the one through whom he will begin a new creation. He remembers Noah. And so God causes the floodwaters to begin to recede. When those floodwaters do begin to subside, dry land emerges from the water, just as in the creation account in Genesis 1. In fact, Genesis 8.1 again says that God made a wind to pass over the watery earth. But if you remember that in Hebrew, the word for wind is the same as the word for spirit, you catch that this is really another allusion back to Genesis 1, another link with Genesis 1 where the Spirit hovers over the waters to put the waters in their proper place. And we're told that the ark finally comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat. Uh, Noah wants to see what conditions are like, and so first he releases a raven an unclean bird which will eat the carcasses, and the raven flies to and fro until the waters dry up. But then three times, Noah releases a clean bird. He releases a dove. The first dove flies out and flutters above 
the waters of the ark. Again, reminding us of the Holy Spirit that fluttered above the waters. And it's for this reason that later in Scripture we see the Holy Spirit explicitly linked with the dove as its symbol. But this first dove comes back. There's no place to land. The second time, the dove brings back an olive leaf. Now the olive tree, in terms of the biblical economy, the biblical worldview, the Bible's way of looking at the world, its symbolism, the olive tree is the holiest tree. Olive oil, in fact, symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that this dove brings back an olive leaf shows that this new world will be a holy place. It belongs to God. This olive leaf is a sign of holiness, a sign of peace, a sign that God is restoring life to this world. The third time the dove is sent out, it does not come back at all because it has found a home in this new world. This new world will be a home for God's spirit, a house for God to dwell in. Well, Noah gets off the ark, and several things happen, and all these things are important. They really all deserve their own sermon. I'll just talk about them briefly. Several things happen. Noah builds an altar and offers sacrifice. God gives Noah a renewed commission that echoes Adam's original commission to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the creation. God gives Noah a new food law. He can eat anything he desires, including meat, but he must not eat flesh with its life in it, or its blood in it. God gives Noah authority to execute murderers. And God renews his covenant promise to Noah, giving him the sign of the rainbow. Now, consider several of these things here. Noah can eat meat, which presumably was not the case before this. Not sure about that, but that seems to have been the case, that men were not meat eaters before this, at least not with divine permission. Noah now can eat flesh, but not with the lifeblood in it. He should not try to get his life from the blood of animals. He's to get his life from God. He's to receive life as a gift from God. Everything that he's to eat is dead. You know, you think about that. Everything we eat is dead. Uh, we only get life from what we eat because God gives us life. God sustains life. The only blood we can drink is the blood of Christ in the Eucharist. We're not to seek to get our life from the blood of animals. Here, Noah is given freedom to eat meat. I think we can say that that is part of his increase in dominion over the lower creation. Uh, Noah's a new Adam, but he's a glorified Adam. Uh, with, with greater freedom, greater dominion over the creation. It's also worth noting that while Noah's commission to be fruitful and to multiply echoes Adam's original commission, it goes beyond it. Again, Noah is a matured Adam, a glorified Adam. He's not just a priest, he's now a king. And you see that in the fact that he is given the right to exercise judgment. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, what happened? There was no one with authority on earth to execute Cain to avenge Abel's blood. Now that changes. There will be an avenger of blood on the earth. God entrusts man with the power of the sword, the power to execute a murderer. And there's a rationale given for this. It's the imago dei, the fact that man is made in the image of God. Because man bears God's image, an attack on man is an attack on God. Because man bears God's image, man has been delegated 
authority to act as an agent or instrument of divine vengeance. So the man executes justice on a murderer, executes a murderer as penalty for having taken life, his own life is forfeit, he took life and so his own life is lost. That, that's really divine justice being enacted by humans. Through Noah, humanity is given this right, this power. Now I do need to add to this that in terms of Old Testament law, uh, the bar of proof for a capital crime is very high, so high in fact, that it was much more likely that a murderer would escape justice than that an innocent man would be wrongfully executed. But the point here in Genesis 9, the main point here, is that Noah becomes a king. He's given kingly authority, the right to execute God's vengeance on the earth. God shares more of his authority with man than before. There's maturation, there's glorification. Now what happens when Noah offers sacrifice? This is the first thing he does when he comes off the ark, is to offer sacrifice. These sacrifices are a sweet-smelling aroma to God as they ascend to His throne. And in response, the Lord makes a covenant promise. He says to Noah, Never again will I curse the ground for man's sake, even though... Men will be evil from his youth. I will not ever again destroy every living thing. God knows that man's heart has not been changed. Men will still be sinners. And yet God says, even so, I won't destroy the earth in this way. Never again will I destroy every living thing as I have in the flood. Instead, God promises to maintain order in the creation. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat. Winter and summer, day and night, will not cease, he says. In other words, what this really is, this is God, in covenantal language, renewing his commitment to his creation. Renewing his commitment to his original purposes for the creation. God is saying, through his people, people with a Noah-like faith and Noah-like obedience, his original design for the world will be fulfilled. Now it's so important to understand, the sacrifice Noah offers, the sacrifice is really the basis of everything here. Everything in this Noahic covenant is founded upon sacrifice. On the basis of sacrifice, the world will be preserved. The world will not be destroyed in another flood, another cataclysmic global event like that. On the basis of sacrifice, a new humanity founded by Noah will be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. On the basis of sacrifice, God will give men kings and governments to maintain justice. On the basis of sacrifice, culture and civilization will grow and mature. On the basis of sacrifice, order and stability are restored and will be maintained in the world. On the basis of sacrifice, man is promised enthronement and Sabbath rest. On the basis of sacrifice, hope. Hope for a good and glorious future for humanity. Hope is rekindled. God accepts Noah's sacrifice. He reaffirms his covenant with Noah and with the creation. And then he gives to Noah a sign of this promise, a sign to go with the promise, a sign of this covenant. It is the sign of the rainbow.
God says, this covenant will be with me and you and every living creature for generations to come. God says, I have set my bow in the clouds as a sign of this covenant so that when I see it, I will remember my covenant with you and I will never again send a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, what does this tell us about the meaning of the rainbow for the people of God? You know, it's interesting. There's actually no Hebrew word for rainbow. A lot of English translations put rainbow into the text in Genesis. But actually, the word that's used is a word that regularly describes a war bow. The kind of bow that you would use to shoot arrows. When God makes this promise and says that the rainbow is its sign, that he will not destroy the creation again. It is as if God is saying, I have unstrung my war bow and hung it in the sky. I'm not going to wage war on my creation anymore. God has hung up his war bow as a sign of peace. It's like kings of old who would shove their swords into the ground blade first. As a way of saying the battle is over, we're at peace, we're not fighting anymore. God puts his war bow in the sky as a way of saying there is peace. I have disarmed myself. But I think it's one angle on this, but I think there's another way to look at it that goes even further and perhaps is even better because of the way it ties in with the rest of Scripture. We've got to read the Bible visually. We've got to read the Bible visually And so we've got to ask, what kind of picture does this war bow in the sky give to us? If you picture the rainbow as a war bow, which way is it pointed? Which way is the war bow pointed? It's pointed away from earth. It's pointed at heaven. This is just, this is the opposite of what's just been happening. God has been shooting the arrows of his wrath, so to speak, at earth. That's what the flood is all about. God aiming the arrows of his wrath at all flesh across the face of the earth. But now God is saying the next time the world has grown so evil that it must be destroyed, that all flesh must be destroyed from the face of the earth, the arrows of God's wrath will be pointed at himself. Think about what a rainbow looks like as a war bow. God doesn't aim his war bow at earth. He aims it at heaven. God does not point his war bow at his people. He points it at himself. Before the flood, men had filled the world with violence. And so God judged them violently. The next time the world grows so bad, it must be destroyed. What will God do? God will absorb the violence and the judgment into himself so that creation might be spared, so that all flesh might be spared. He will take the arrows of his own wrath. What is the rainbow? The rainbow is a sign of God's faithfulness. The rainbow reveals God's grace and mercy. The rainbow reveals God's plan of salvation, what we call substitutionary atonement. God taking the penalty his people deserve. Uh, John Stott says, sin is when man puts himself in God's place 
Salvation is when God puts himself in man's place. And the rainbow is a promise. This is what God will do. Man deserves the arrows of God's wrath. God will aim them at himself. In other words, the rainbow reveals the gospel. It is the gospel. The meaning of the rainbow then is fully revealed at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The meaning of the rainbow is fully fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ where the arrows of God's wrath land in God's own Son. God's own Son who is one with God. And so He absorbs the arrows and the wrath we deserve. God doesn't curse us as we deserve. He bears His own curse in Himself in our place. That's what the rainbow means for the people of God. The rainbow points ahead to the cross, to the salvation of God's people. But that's not all. As great and as glorious as that is to know that the rainbow means that God will take the punishment man deserves. We can go one step further with this. The rainbow not only points ahead to the cross, the rainbow points ahead to the church. And to see this takes a moment of explanation because we have to draw some connections. We have to connect some dots within the scriptures to, to draw these lines. It's very interesting that virtually every time someone sees into heaven, that is, every time somebody gets to see into God's celestial throne room, they see a rainbow. It happens in Ezekiel 1 where the prophet gets to look up through the sea of glass into the throne room of God. Ezekiel sees a rainbow. It happens in Revelation 4, which we read this morning. There is a rainbow surrounding God's throne. And so really we can say the rainbows we see in our sky are actually replicas or copies of that original rainbow that encircles God's throne in His glory cloud of heaven. In fact, we have to say rainbows aren't rare in heaven. There is always a rainbow around the throne of God in the glory cloud. God is always wrapped in His bow. He is clothed, you could say, in a coat of many colors all the time. But there's some interesting links we can make with this. Remember the Jewish high priest wore a breastplate with 12 different colored stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Each stone representing a different tribe. Each color representing a different tribe. The high priest, you could say, wore the rainbow on his chest. He wore the rainbow on his heart. A breastplate of many colors. And those rainbow colors, again, symbolize the people of God. Each tribe had its own color. Just as the rainbow encircles God's throne in heaven, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and began marching through the wilderness to the land of rest, the land of promise, the twelve tribes were arrayed around the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant is where God was enthroned in the midst of His people. And the twelve tribes were gathered around the ark. They were camped in a circle around God's throne. And since each tribe was associated with a particular colorful gemstone, it was like having a rainbow around the throne. A rainbow made of people. A people rainbow surrounding the ark of the covenant, the throne of God. 
In Revelation 21, we find the same thing in New Covenant form. Revelation 21 and 22 are a description of the New Jerusalem, but it's really also the Bride of Christ, the Bride of the Lamb. And so the city is really a picture of the people. It's a symbolic picture of the people of God. And so in Revelation 21, you find that on the walls of the city, there are these colored stones. That is to say, these stones encircle or surround the New Jerusalem. And there are 12 stones in all surrounding the holy city. And, and so because the city walls, the city itself, including the walls, represents the people of God, what can we say? This New Jerusalem, which is the bride of the Lamb, which is the church, what does it picture for us? God, again, surrounding Himself with a multicolored people. God surrounding Himself with the rainbow of his people. In fact, of all that's not enough, in Ephesians 3, we find something very interesting. Paul says he has been called to preach the unsearchable riches of God's grace to the Gentile nations. That's his calling. To, to take the gospel beyond the borders of Israel, to go out to all the descendants of Noah, all the nations of the world, so they will come to know through his preaching the fellowship of the mystery of salvation which God revealed in Christ Jesus so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known in the church to the principalities and powers. Ephesians 3.10 says the church is the manifold wisdom of God. Now John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians points out that the word manifold here the word that's translated manifold in Ephesians 3.10 actually means multicolored. It's a word that would be used to describe colorfully embroidered cloth. If you had a beautiful tapestry, you would say it is a manifold tapestry, a multicolored tapestry. It would be used to describe the various colors of flowers in a garden. It's a manifold garden. It's a multicolored garden with all these different colored flowers. Or it could be used to describe rainbows because of their variety of colors, the spectrum of color that is seen, the manifold colors you see in the rainbow. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying the church is the multicolored wisdom of God put on display. The church is the rainbow-colored wisdom of God on display for angels and men to behold. The church is beautiful because the church is God's rainbow. How does this work? Perhaps this way. In baptism, God rains water from above upon us. Heavenly water falls on us as the light of God's truth and love shine on, on and through the waters of baptism and refract through the water of baptism. We become the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God. In baptism, we've got water and light brought together and it shines out all the colors of the rainbow. It's like we are prisms through whom God's multicolored wisdom shines into the world. What does the rainbow mean for the people of God? You are now God's rainbow in the world. You are the sign of God's covenant faithfulness. The very existence of the church the very existence of the church as a multinational, worldwide, global fellowship is proof 
that God is faithful to His covenant, that He is faithful to His purposes for the creation. We are God's rainbow. We are the sign of God's faithfulness. It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says Christ rules over all things for His church. Paul says that Christ exercises His sovereignty. He's been enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything has been put under His feet. And so Christ rules over the cosmos, but why? And how? He rules over the whole cosmos for the sake of the church. Paul says at the end of Ephesians 1, Christ preserves the cosmos for the church's sake. Christ rules over all things for the church's sake. Christ maintains regular seasons. Summer, winter, spring, and fall. He maintains order and structure in nature and in society. Christ restrains cataclysmic flood-like judgments on the world. Why? All for the sake of the church. Christ preserves the world and Christ rules over the world for the sake of the church so that we can fulfill the mission we've been given. The mission of making Christ all in all. So that through us, as the nations are discipled, we can put on display the rainbow-colored wisdom of God. See, it's really not the White House that should be bathed in colors of the rainbow. That's really a grotesque parody of the truth if you think about why that was done. The colors of the rainbow actually belong to the New Jerusalem. It is the church that is bathed in the glorious light and color of the rainbow. We are the rainbow people of God surrounding His throne, enjoying His favor, knowing God will preserve order in the world fully enough and long enough so that we can accomplish the mission he has given to us of making Christ Jesus his son all in all. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this sign of the gospel, this sign of your covenant faithfulness, the rainbow. We thank you for the way the rainbow not only reveals to us who you are as the faithful covenant-keeping God who will preserve his creation, but it also reveals to us who we are as the people who put on display your manifold wisdom, your multicolored wisdom. <clears throat> oh, Father, may your light, your love and your truth shine through us and reveal the glorious spectrum, all these colors of the rainbow, that the world and that the principalities and powers might behold your greatness and your glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.